Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. I'm excited to continue on this conversation of Romans 5, 6 through 8. It's part two of a sermon titled, The Evidence of God's Love in Christ's Death. Last week we covered verse 6, which said, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, Paul's intent here was to show that God's love is most vividly seen in Christ's death. Now, if you remember, I broke down these three clauses that are found in verse 6, demonstrating how, number one, God's love was shown in Christ's death while we were helpless. That's point number one. Point number two is God's love was shown in Christ's death at the right time. And number three, God's love was shown in Christ's death for the ungodly. And then I showed how those three statements were connected to three important doctrines, which were the doctrine of total depravity, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and the doctrine of limited atonement. Now today, we're going to be moving on to verses 7 and 8, which we'll see Paul demonstrate and magnify. That's what we're seeing here. He's demonstrating and magnifying the exceptional nature of the claims in verse 6. So I want you guys to be students of Scripture. So look down at your Bibles, see verse 6, and we're going to see how Paul demonstrates and magnifies the exceptional nature of the claims of verse 6. Namely, that he's taking this theme of God's love for us in Christ's death. And what he's doing is he's amplifying it further. And he's going to do that by comparing it to man's standard of love. So let's read. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so let's talk about verse 7 for a second. Paul is pointing out in verse 7, it says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. So Paul is pointing out the uncommon nature of a man or a woman willing to die for another person. It's very uncommon for that to happen. Now, the degree of sacrificial love is extremely rare, okay? Uh, It only occurs in situations where the beneficiary of someone's sacrifice is a person who is righteous or respected or they're an object of affection for the person that's giving up their life. Let me give you an example. Uh, A father might die for his wife. A father might die for his children, Uh, A soldier might die for his comrades in battle or for his commanding officer. Uh, A CIA agent might die protecting the president of the United States. But in any case, when we look at these situations, sacrificing your life so that another person may live is rare and it only occurs as a display of extreme love for or honor for a particular individual. Uh, our, our Lord confirms this idea of the connection between self-sacrifice and love 
in John 15, 13. It says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends, end quote. Now, verse eight in our passage here goes on to say, and I want you guys to pay attention. It says, but God, pay attention to that contrast clause, but it's contrasting one thing from another. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so again, here, Paul opens up with this idea of contrasting man's idea of dying, potentially even for a righteous person or a quote, good person, not talking about a a righteousness before God's law, but the generalized view of a good person, uh, distinguishing the radical difference between man's love and God's love. So this is what Paul's doing with that contrast clause. He wants to show us, well, here's, man's example and how they might sacrifice for a good person. And here's God's example of how he might sacrifice for the ungodly. And so it's showing you a contrast between these two natures. While man may die for someone he loves, Christ dies for God-haters and murderers and thieves. Okay, while a man may die for another person worthy to keep living, you know, a family member, a the president, the commanding officer in his unit, Christ dies for those who are worthy of death. This is the contrast that's being made here. It's showing the greatest degree of love and how it is so much more than man's view of sacrificial love. The early 1900s preacher Henry Ironside wrote on this verse just shortly after his death in 1951. And he said, quote, In modern times, we hear of World War II veterans who recount stories of GIs who fell on grenades to save their friends. But there is no record of a GI falling on a grenade to save a Nazi. Here's the point. A fireman may risk his life to rescue someone from an arson-related fire. But the chance of that fireman offering to go to prison on behalf of the arsonist is nil. Parents may pay the ransom for their kidnapped child, but they are very unlikely to post bond for their child's kidnapper. And yet this is, in essence, exactly what God does for us on the cross. End quote. Amazing. Amazing. See, Christ gave up his life for enemies of God. Again, self-love is blinding, and we love to think of humanity as, hey, he's not a bad person. If you're not regenerate, if you're not born again, if you have not received Christ and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, you are a God-hater. That is the definition and biography of all people outside of Christ. We can see this in Ephesians 2. It gives us a description of who we were prior to Christ. It's difficult for us to comprehend the state of our own hearts. They're not that bad. They're not that bad. And this is what Jesus saw. He looked at the Pharisees and the world would go, oh, they're not that bad. Look at them. They're trying. And Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're ugly on the inside, full of dead bones and beautiful on the outside. This is the spiritual view that we must have of people that are outside of Christ. Paul says later, just a few verses later, I believe in verse 10 of chapter five, it says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. But we were enemies. 
truly not willing to give up the control of our own lives. We were Lord in our own lives. God's love is most vividly seen in Christ's death. Not only how he gave up his life, but for whom it was given up for. It was given up for sinners and for enemies and for God-haters and for lawbreakers. It's not just that he gave up his life, but who he gave it up for. That's the difference and the distinguishing factor between man's love and God's love. It's absolutely essential to see that type of love extended for you. And that's what I want to talk about for a second. I want to focus on the last word of verse 8. Look at the last word of verse 8. The word us. Us. I'll read the passage one more time. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, we know English here, right? We understand the basics of grammar. This is a definite personal pronoun. That's what the word us is. It's a definite personal pronoun. Paul did not use the word all. He did not use the word everyone. These are indefinite personal pronouns. Paul did not say, but God demonstrates his own love toward all in that while everyone was sinning or yet sinners, Christ died for all. He didn't say that. No, he, he limits it to a definite. You know, if you think about English grammar, there's definite articles and indefinite articles. A definite article is the, right? The Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one, you know, there is, you know, the God, right? The Lord, Jesus Christ, the God of this world. The idea of if we have a God, there's could be many gods, but the God is there's one God. And so we have indefinite, indefinite articles, and we have indefinite, indefinite pronouns. And this is important because we're expositors of scripture. And we're looking at these because these are also indefinite or definite pronouns in the Greek. And every single word matters on how we interpret scripture. So Paul is referring to a particular group of people, us. Who is the antecedent to us? Now, again, the word antecedent means, hey, John went and kicked the ball and then he ran to get it. Well, the antecedent to he who ran to get it is John. That's the antecedent. So we want to know who is the antecedent to us? Who is Paul speaking of when he says us? He's referring to a particular group of people. Now, I say all this because it's very easy for a verse like this to lose its significance because when we read it as a generalization instead of a personalization, we lose our connection with the gospel. If it's for all versus for you, there's a major difference there. It's easy to read this like a story as if it's talking about someone else and not actually that your name was written on the hand of Christ as it was pierced and his blood spilled for you. That's essential. We're not reading the scriptures in generalizations when it comes to soteriology and who was atoned for and who is redeemed. We're reading it in a way to understand its connection to our own walk with the Lord. 
The us are those whom God has uniquely chosen as recipients of grace. Has uniquely chosen as recipients of grace. And Paul wants us, those who have been born again, to see the greatness of God's love through Christ's death delivered for us, not when we were good, not when we were praising God and obeying his law, but when we were still sinners. That's the point that he's making. I'm going to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 9. We just read it earlier, but I want you guys to pay attention to the nine uses of definite personal pronouns. The nine uses. He says, verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to stop for a second. In the Greek, by the way, this is all one sentence. It actually goes longer than what I'm going to read. Paul is actually in a run-on acclamation of praise when he writes this sentence. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Amen? So as it pertains to application, verse 8 can honestly be written to say, God, but God demonstrates his own love toward you in that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. What I want is I want you to take the truth of that passage of scripture and actually stick it on you. It's not talking about someone else. It's talking about you. Now, it's talking about the church, certainly, but it's talking about you. This is not a disconnected principle of theology. This is a story about you, and it's essential that we make that connection. It cannot go unfelt. There's a clear personal component to the gospel. Now, election, which is essentially what we're talking about, election by its very nature is exclusive, And you know, it's actually the exclusivity that makes the gospel so beautiful. You know how dirty a marriage is if you have 10 wives? What makes it beautiful is that you have an exclusiveness that my love is cast upon my wife exclusively in a special way. Nobody struggles with the election of Israel. That God had his love exclusively poured out upon Israel. And so there is an exclusivity that comes with election. And it's why it's very important that we call that doctrine unconditional election because there is no conditions by which we know by which God has chosen to elect some and leave some to justice. But those whom he has elected, we get to say, oh Lord, why have you chosen me? Why have you chosen me and not that guy? Because we're both equally wicked. But why me? Have you poured your mercy and compassion upon me? But the fact that he has chosen you and not someone else, there is something there that makes you go, oh Lord, I can't believe 
that you have laid your affection upon me, especially if you recognize how wicked and sinful you have been. It's not something that we can ever boast about. It's certainly not a mercy that's extended to all. It's a mercy extended to some. I will have mercy upon who I will have mercy. Romans 9. I want you to listen just quickly to a few passages of of Scripture that speak to God's electing grace. And I wish that we could spend a whole nother hour talking to this doctrine, but I'm going to just go through a few. 2 Timothy 1.9. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he has, or which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Matthew 22, uh, 14. I was just speaking about this with Jason this week. It says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, a lot of people can get twisted up on this and go, oh, well, hey, it says in Romans 8 that those who have been predestined are called. And so it says called here and it says called there. What does called mean? And the word in the Greek is kalos or kalos, kalos. And this is an important distinction to be made. What does it mean that many are called? Well, if you look to the parable and you understand the parable of the wedding feast that's happening in this section of scripture in Matthew 22, he's talking about that many are verbally called. Truly, you see people out calling out in the streets to come. There is an audible listening of the gospel. They're hearing the proclamation of the gospel. Many are called externally. But few are chosen. And the chosen, the, the, the call that's referencing Romans chapter 8 is an internal call. There's an external call and there's an internal call. There is having heard the gospel audibly and then there's spiritual reality of Jesus giving you ears to hear. Let him hear. Many people hear the gospel. But few are chosen to have that internal call to come to be at the wedding feast. John 10, 27 through 28, we see Jesus using this personal language when he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus has clearly in mind a group of people, a group of people, a special people on which he has put his love upon in a way that he has not loved others. Again, in the marriage reality that I have a special love for Veronica in a way that I don't, I have a general love for the world. I have a general love for all women, but I have a special love for my wife. In D.A. Carson's book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, he talks about the multidimensional nature of God's love. And one of them is actually a discriminating love. As a husband, you discriminate towards other women and it's loving to your wife. And so this is complex theology, but God has laid his special love upon you. Isaiah 43, one says, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. What a beautiful passage. Revelation 21, 27 says, No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, speaking the kingdom, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Later, it talks about even before the foundation of the world. 
So if you believe in Christ, you must see that God, before the foundation of the world, elected you to receive mercy and love, to be redeemed for his glory, to be adopted as a son or daughter, to secure your salvation by his own blood, to make you righteous by his own record, and to preserve you by his Holy Spirit. Election should be the absolute diamond of the gospel for you, in the sense that it's, it's such a beautiful thing. We reject it, when in reality, it's such a wonderful thing to be chosen, uniquely chosen, not by anything that you've done, but for some unknown reason, God has put his grace and mercy and compassion upon you. Now, all of this, the love and mercy of salvation has been eternally shown to you by his death on the cross while you were still a helpless sinner. That's what Paul had in view here. He wants us to see this. He wants us to, to understand the depth. But what does this now mean for your life? Because we, we understand the doctrine, and as Paul always, always does, he does doctrine and theology and then application. What's the application? How does this change the way that you live? How should this change the way that you think and behave? 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There it is. That's the application. The cross of Christ was not only an act of love, but an example of love. An example of love. It wasn't only actually an example of love, it was actually a command of love. And I'll tell you why, because it says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Ought calls for moral causation. We ought or ought not to do something. And the scripture says we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This means because of Christ, we are now expected to pattern his example. This isn't just great news, I'm going to go live my own life. No, this is great news, I'm going to live like Christ for others. How is this going to translate into your own life? We are to be people who lay down our lives for who? The brethren, for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the, the uh, social justice gospel is going to distort this passage of Scripture and call it into sacrificing your life for everyone. It doesn't say that. It says for the brethren. doesn't mean that you can't live sacrificially for others, but let's not go beyond the text. Now, in a real practical matter for the persecuted church, this is a direct reality of a call to be willing to die for the other people in your Christian community, physically. It's a real call. There has been passages, or this passage of scripture has crossed the minds and eyes of people who are living in persecution that are actually required to obey this in a very wooden sense that you are to be willing to die for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's just the real practical reality. Now, in terms of the principles, there is a principle of laying down our lives in every possible way. It means to put the interests of others before the interest of yourself. 
I don't have the Philippians verse there, but you're probably thinking of it. And this means that we sacrifice our bitterness and extend forgiveness to the glory of God. It means that we sacrifice, you know, our our financial goals and our business things or whatever it may be to maybe extend the mission of the church to give to the needy, to give to the folks in the community of God to the glory of God. It means that we sacrifice our time to pray and to disciple and to uh, come into the lives of other people and to catechize our children, whatever it may be, to the glory of God. It means that we lay down those things that we want to selfishly seek for the benefit of others. It's a real practical principle for the church. This is what we do as men and women who follow Christ. We, we love how he has loved us. We lay down our lives as Christ has laid down his. John Chrysostom once said, and I'll close with this, quote, he gave himself fully to you. He left nothing for himself. Give yourself fully to others. Do not withhold your love, end quote. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the example of your son, Jesus. Lord, that it pushes against every possible desire of our flesh. Lord, we ask that you would continue to work in us the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom. Lord, that up is down and down is up and that weak is strong and that strong is weak and that last is first and that first is last and that dying for your enemies is good. Father, we ask that you would help us to see how to love others the way that you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.